the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffled Podcast, Episode 52. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning. I am great. I'm really good. I feel like I've, I've missed you. Like we we record these things, but we have not been chatting in between. So I always feel like it's been a while. I know, I know. It's been like a whole week, <laughs> right? I mean, we text and stuff, but still, even that, like we're just we've been kind of really into our projects and the things we're doing, and you know, our, I our know. Families. So I'm I look forward to these times we get to kind of catch up with one another. I agree. And we've also had a lot of um, uh, online activity, I guess you could yeah. say, like our Recovery Gals Art Exchange, all this art's coming through. And so mm. whenever I drop into social media, it feels like that's where I'm heading there to see the new art pieces that are put up there, see, uh, look at the interactions going on there. And um and then also we are going to we're in the middle of preparing for our one year anniversary episode. So I've also been collecting questions for that. Yeah. So yeah. It's like a it's like winter is dead. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's spring and all of this stuff is happening. And so yeah, I think the Recovery Gals Art Exchange kind of kicked it off for me on that first day of spring and it has been kind of a whirlwind of activity online and I love it so much Sandra yeah it's been great (laughs) it's been great so yeah I feel like high-fiving and and (laughs) on social media and that's about it (laughs) yeah well I just saw your exchange and I read your blog post about it and it was just incredible I loved love loved your concept and what you did thank you thank you I you know I'm not always super like pleased with myself just sitting back all smug or whatever but I was very happy with how it turned out you know like Sam was talking about the concept of taking something you imagined and then being okay with it not looking exactly like your vision Mm. um but with the interpretation. And I think I was, um, I think that was ruminating in the back of my head as I was creating this piece because I had some ideas um, that were pretty specific. You know, you kind of get the vision. And what ended up, um, what I ended up producing did not completely reflect the vision at all, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, parts of it did, but not all of it. And, um, So, uh, but it turned out what resulted was something that I'm glad that I didn't envision because it was so much better, I think, or, you know, it, so more, it more represented what I wanted to say and what I wanted to make. I love when that happens though. Like, 
I mean, and that is the creative process. If we really give ourselves over to it, um, I've been dreaming about how my paintings are going to look. And I told my professor like, oh, I've dreamed these fully actualized paintings. And she kind of looked at me with her arms crossed and she's just, she's like, oh, really? Huh? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. And this is at the beginning (laughs) of the semester. And she's like, you know, they're not going to turn out like that. Right. And I was like, well, why? Well, I mean, maybe not exactly. And she's like, well, I hope not exactly because, you know, there's a process and I know you like process. And so it's interesting because I just finished spring break I had this total block and weather intervened with me painting these large panels outside because I don't have room to paint them many places at my home. But how they're morphing and changing, like, is what I love. But I'm right. stuck for all of a spring break until that Sunday that I'm packing up the car and finishing up in the studio. And I had a great epiphany. So I look mm-hmm. forward to seeing how it turns out. But you're, when you have this this is how I want it to be. If you stay stuck to that idea, that's a really frustrating way to be, mm-hmm. right? Like you allowed yourself room yeah. to change your mind or to have yeah. a morph. Yeah. I didn't get, uh, yeah, I didn't stay stuck in the fact that it wasn't uh, reflecting my vision, mm-hmm. um, my original idea. Um, I didn't stay stuck there. I just kept going and I just let my, you know, you just kind of, you, you let your creative intuition, um, where it wants you to go. And that's, you know, without just sounding completely esoteric, that's how it works. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. And listening, you've been talking a lot about intuition lately and I've been, I've been listening um, to you in order to listen to myself and kind of that conversation we've been having. And it's like the body knows, the body knows when something is right or when it doesn't resonate or when it doesn't, you know, feel good or when it's not the direction that you wanted to be headed. And I'm finding because I'm sober now that I'm able to listen, um, to that a little bit more, but it does take practice. I, I just, yeah, it's not completely. I mean, even though intuition should be natural for me, it's that comes and then I stuff it down or I pick something else or I distract myself or think that I know better. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head actually, you know, 20 years ago when I, my creative journey, I definitely questioned my intuition all the time, all the time. I questioned my, um, my decisions, my creative decisions, second guessed myself, doubted things often. Um, so I think time is definitely what it takes uh, to get to know your style. I talk about style a lot, but that, I think that was a word that was sort of drilled into my head um, when I was in school for photography, you know, 20 years ago. But um, finding your own style, understanding why you make the creative decisions that you make, um, those things take time. Yeah, you can't just, I'm going to be like this, I'm going to make like this. It does. It's a, it's a, um, I think I talk about it too, like a visual vocabulary for me. Like I have to develop it Mm, to see what that body of work is. For sure. And especially when you're making a, you know, when you're doing something for a show, um, I don't know if I've told you this before, but I had a photography show. I had one when I was in my twenties and, um, 
when you're putting pieces together for a show, it has to, each piece has to speak individually, of course, but then it has to say something as a whole. And um, that's where you take some discernment. And um, so I get it. I get, I get the struggle. Yeah. We are having just some small little um, blips coming in and out of our um, intro here. So I think, you know, I don't know. I don't, I hate to cut a short sonder, but I was thinking maybe we should jump into things and just do our intro for Jamie. What do you think? Okay. I'm sorry. I just don't want our listeners in, to be back and okay. forth having us come in and out. I'm sorry. I think you wanted to talk more about yeah. uh, the 100 day project, but um you think you could do that quickly and then we could just we'll talk about it later. Talk about it later. We'll okay. talk about it another time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So why don't we okay. introduce who our guest is Let's talk about today. who we have on. Yeah. Yeah. Today we have on Jamie Amos. We love Jamie. Um, met Jamie through a secret Facebook group. Um, she has a presence on Instagram as well. But Jamie started drinking at a slumber party at age 14 where she promptly downed a bottle of wild turkey and blacked out. She shot Coke and meth in her 20s and binge drank every weekend until she started recovery at age 34. In recovery, she recognized she hid addiction behind high-functioning achievement, and she's now committed to demonstrating that the bottom is where you stop. I love that, that punctuation mark, like just the the bottom is where you stop. Um, Yeah. Her fiction has appeared in the Greensboro Review, Cold Mountain Review, and Story South, among others. She's written about sobriety for In the NOLA and Clean and Sober. In December of 2017, she lost her grandpa to cancer, and two months later, her mom and her grandma in a car accident. She lives in New Orleans, blogs about recovery at the neutral ground, and photographs her pit bull constantly on Instagram. And you can find her there at Jamie underscore Amos. Um, and her website, if you guys want to read her writing, um, is theneutralground.net. I think you guys are going to like this interview. Yeah, you're going to love Jamie. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Hi, thank you. I am incredibly excited about this. Oh, so <laughs> are we, Jamie. We just love you. Oh, thank you. I'm going to tear up. <laughs> hey, Jamie, do you say your last name Amos or Amos? Amos. Amos. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. Mm. See, I, you know, I live in Texas, as everyone knows, and uh, a, lot, a lot of people would pronounce your last name here, Amos. I like that. I like yeah, that. Because um, <laughs> it almost has a little Hispanic... Uh, I don't know. It sounds a little Hispanic to me, but it's Amos. 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 Yes, I got to decide because uh, this is actually my biological father's last name, and I've never had a relationship with him. So I think I just picked how it sounded. Who knows how he pronounces it? Interesting. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people say my last name is Salas, and my last name is kind of like the word solace, S-O-L-A-C-E. So well, I have, Yeah, I've been saying Salas. Yeah. It's solace. So I never, but again, that, that's just my father picked that because that wasn't, um, his family's from um, Mexico and Cuba and they picked a different last name when they came, um, to the States. So maybe it's not pronounced that way either, but that's how I, that's how we pronounced <laughs> no, it. But No, but in Mexico, it would be pronounced solace. Oh. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. It wouldn't be Salas. It wouldn't have, uh, yeah, that, 
Midwestern twang. That's what I hear. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That I'll answer to anything. I like that it, my last name's a palindrome. Makes me really happy. So that's what I like about it. It's S-A-L-A-S. So enough about me. Jamie's on the show. <laughs> <laughs> not go there i just want to hear about you guys we get tired of ourselves sometimes do you um you guys have like such soothing voices that i take you on my walks with me and uh i don't know i feel like you're caressing me with your voices oh thank you that's really weird And that's me. <laughs> that's what I like about you already. I'm sweet. <laughs> well, well, should we get, jump in? Should we jump in? Yeah, let's jump in, Jamie. Why don't you tell us how you came to sobriety? So I, um, I'll just go like quickly through my, my drinking and using career. I started using pretty early. I started drinking early and then I got into hard drugs in my teens and twenties. And, uh, I like did, I shot Coke and meth for a while. Um, but then I, I, you know, I quickly realized that like I was going to die and all the time inside of me, I had something telling you know, telling me to like, you know, strive more. Like I came, I was the first in my family to go to college and I came from a pretty poor family and you know, there was always something in me that wanted more than that. So I, you know, s- kind of stopped doing those drugs or went down to like once a year. Um, but drinking never went away. So I was always a heavy drinker and a binge drinker. So I didn't drink, I wasn't a daily drinker. Um, but I would, you know, once I started drinking, like the joke is always like the party doesn't stop when Jamie starts drinking. Um, so I went off to college and then, um, you know, that took forever. I don't even remember how long that took. It might've taken like seven or eight years to actually mm, get college. Same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was a lot of drinking in that. Um, yeah. Slo- slowed things down a bit. <laughs> really did. I mean, there's like at least three dropouts in that period. And, um, I mean, I do have to say though, like I kept going back and for that, I'm, I'm proud of that. Yeah. You know, there, there wasn't really anything else pushing me back, but that I wanted to finish. And I always wanted to write, but, uh, coming from a poor family, like that's like going to your mom and saying, you're going to go like live on the street and, you know, <laughs> scribble in a notebook. <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. not a thing you tell people you want to do. Um, and so my family really wanted, they were like, fine, great. You always wanted to do that. Um, now get a job. So I decided to switch my major to sociology because I thought they got jobs. I don't know why. Oh my God, Um, Jamie, I did not know we had this in common. Okay, go ahead. I mean, I swear to God, you're telling my college story. Go ahead. So I thought like, all right, I'll be a counselor, you know, and that's why I'd I'd switch to sociology. And um, my last year of college, this professor took an interest in my writing and was like, no, you need to, you need to try this. And it it would have never occurred to me on my own. So I applied to MFAs and went. And by then I was just really drinking heavily. Um, You know, I got through my MFA where everybody drank heavily. So like I could really, you know, hide my drinking in that. Um, But when I got out and so I got sober in 2014 and I had already graduated with my MFA. Um, I was working a job that didn't pay much, but I loved, I was teaching ESL and I mean, I loved it, but it didn't, 
you know, it was a very low salary and it left me almost no time to write. So I decided in 14 that I was going to take three months off and work on my novel. And so something inside of me told me that I could not drink <coughs> and do that. Like I could not take this time off and take, you know, money away from my family and, you know, take this time for myself and drink because drinking would ruin the whole fucking thing. Wait, I can cuss on this, can't I? <laughs> Say whatever you want. <laughs> yes. Like a, a very like triggery, uh, cursy mouth. <laughs> Just comes out. Let it go. Let it fly. <laughs> so I was like, all right, this will be an experiment. I'll quit drinking. And, uh, you know, I, I quit and I, you know, finished a really shitty novel in that three months, but I finished it. Um, and you know, I just, I just kept going cause I felt better, but I was also really, really, so depression is a big part of my story. Um, drinking perpetuated my depression. And so I spent six months sober and I knew I felt better and I knew I was no longer like doing the shameful things that would also perpetuate my depression, but I was still really depressed. Um, so I kept going and, um, you know, that decision to work on that novel and like that decision to understand that my drinking was problematic led to everything else afterwards, which is, you know, therapy and AA and medication for my depression, um, and all the practices that keep me sane, but it all started there. Wow. How where great did you grow up? I'm sorry. Where did you grow up, Jamie? Just real quick. Um, just... I grew. When I was 12. We so I moved around everywhere. I've lived in California, Kentucky, Florida, Illinois. But my family's from the Southern Illinois region, right outside outside of St. Louis. Got it. Okay. Okay. Go ahead, Tammy. What were you going to ask? No, I was just going to say how great that that you could that you that you gave yourself that three months that you kind of took that kind of. It must have been nagging at you for a long time to write that book, right? Yeah. And to quit drinking. You know, yeah. like, I had like three therapists in a row, you know, say, maybe it's time to look at your drinking. And I'd be like, you're fired. I'm going to go find right. mm -hmm. else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're not telling me what I want to hear at all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm your salary. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about my drinking. Yeah. I'm going to get a different therapist. Thank you very much. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like when you're ready to receive something like, yeah, three therapists can tell you that, but it's not until it's just the timing of it all. I, I see it um, with some of the women that I chat with or um, read, you know, online and share things with like when they're just not there yet sometimes and you, there's nothing you can tell them. There's no magic formula for how to get sober. You just yeah, kind of know when you know. It's so true. And like that journey to sobriety, um, you know, it wasn't just like one and done, like, oh, I'm going to write a novel and I'm going to get sober. And now I am. I mean, there's relapses in there. There's, uh, uh oh, there's <clears throat> relapse in there. There's me having to look at my other relationships with like <clears throat> food and male attention <clears throat> and, uh, you know, pills. I last, so my clean date is actually last December, 2017, because I, I had a, you know, a back injury and took someone else's hydrocodone and I'm seeing a really phenomenal therapist who specializes in addiction. And he's like, no, let's talk about this. 
did you really need to take those pills? And no, I didn't. I was, you know, grieving my grandfather and I was home with my family, which is stressful. So, you know, it wasn't just one and done for me. Mm-hmm. That's important so, to share. Yeah, that is important to share. I'm curious, Jamie. So you said that you quit drinking when you started writing your novel. When do you think you actually started seeking recovery? Or so, did you right away? No, not at all. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm one of my, I think, biggest problems is being willing to seek out help because it feels as if like I should never admit my own weakness. So I actually didn't. And so that December, so I got sober in June of 2014. And then that December, I was invited to dinner with these other writers that were in town. And I was nervous, you know, you know, you're just like, oh, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting around a table and uh, everybody's ordering wine and I'm almost the last person. So it's like wine, 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 wine. And then it gets to me. And like, I just had these, this moment of fuck it. Like, this has been a great experiment, um, but maybe I'm not, you know, I'm not an alcoholic, I don't have a drinking problem, and now I can drink and I'm fine. I just needed a reset. And then in that moment, this guy that I've known for years sat down next to me, and uh, he ordered water in my hesitation, and I'm like, oh, you're not ordering a drink? And he's like, oh, no, I don't drink. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, I didn't know that. And he's like, yeah, alcohol doesn't agree with me. It makes me an asshole. And (laughs) love that. (laughs) (laughs) relate yeah it led to a conversation that he's been in recovery for 10 years and he took me to my first meeting that night and I think in a very like divine inspiration way saved my life you can't explain that any other way can you seriously I mean I've been at parties with him for Mardi Gras or parades and like I never knew he didn't drink and then that night he's next to me Hmm. Yeah, you just made me tear up. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. It still gives me chills to think about like how lucky I am that that happened. Yeah. No kidding. Mm. No kidding. And so then you just kept going in that direction. Yeah, I did. Um, You know, I worked the 12 steps and I go to 12 step meetings and, you know, I, I really value them. There's an incredible recovery community in New Orleans that runs the gamut. It's not just 12 steps. Like it's pretty welcoming of like of all modalities. Um, so yeah, I like, you know, I, I fought with the 12 steps and I was like, I went through that phase of this is bullshit and I hate this and this book is dumb. And then, right. And then I went back out drinking. I, you know, I also like, I really struggled with, do I have a drinking problem or maybe, you know, I was just stressed or life was hard or whatever. And <clears throat> You know, I was like sitting in a meeting one day and like this guy who is all of the opposite things with me, you know, he was older than me, you know, I'm a white woman, he was a black man, he, just everything that could be different was different and he starts talking about this drinking dream that he had and I had just had one, my first one and it was just this light bulb moment of like, oh, normal people don't have these, (laughs) people without drinking don't have these like thirst quenching, you know, almost erotic dreams about a can of beer. <laughs> That's probably not a thing. Um, right. But I still, even after that light bulb moment, I, you know, I went back out and I experimented with drinking again in 2016 for nine months. And, you know, I'll be the first one to say, like, I didn't have a lot of outward consequences. Most of mine were internal, you know, a lot of depression, a lot of self-hatred, uh, 
you know, my, my husband's amazing and it was really great at just putting, setting up his own boundaries and then letting me find my way. So I didn't have a lot of relationship consequences either. But in that like nine month experiment, I found that I could drink one time and be fine. I could drink two times, three times, but there was always going to be that time where I had, you know, I, I just slipped. It's like I lost my footing and like suddenly I'm wasted on my porch about to go get in the car to get another bottle of champagne and another pack of cigarettes. And like, there's nothing that's going to stop that. Mm, right. Unpredictable. Yeah. But kind of, yeah. but kind of predictable. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> like just the same, like, like my last day drinking, Jamie was on Groundhog Day and kind of the symbolism of that or kind of like what I, like, that's the story of my drinking. I think of, of a lot of people's drinking, right? You just, it keeps happening over and over again. And you keep thinking like, I'm not going to wake up. I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to drink today. And you just yeah. keep doing it. I don't know. Yeah. I, just... I mean, I always say that my actions just never aligned with my intentions. You know, I never had, I would always start with the intention of not getting drunk, not passing out, not being an asshole, you know, but all of those things inevitably would happen. Yeah. Not every time, but it would, that part was unpredictable. I never knew. <clears throat> and that was the, that was the tricky part for me is that <clears throat> the not every time and the not being a daily drinker, like I hid behind that and high achievement and perfectionism for so long, even from myself. Like I, I mean, I was just in so much denial until that 2016 relapse when I, I'd had enough recovery and enough sober people in my life that I could hear their voices of like, I just had an awareness to, to finally surrender and say, I can't drink like other people. How, how is that? I imagine, um, I mean, I hear it in the rooms too, when people come back from a relapse, that's got to be really hard to go back um, and do that. Can you share a little bit of, of what got you to get back in the rooms or got you to um, just get back on that sobriety path? Yeah, um, it fucking sucked. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, is like, you know, for me, I know that uh, it was all in my own head. All my perceptions of shame and judgment and what I thought other people were thinking about me. And, and I know that because the people who were my friends before, you know, remained the people who could check on me while I was drinking, but also immediately I mean for their safety they couldn't remain my friend while I was drinking and I get that but then when I came back they welcomed me with open arms but I still because I don't like to admit weakness I don't like to appear weak I don't ever like to appear like I don't have my shit together a hundred percent it was really humbling mm -hmm. to walk in and say you know because most of the meetings I go to, they say, you know, is anyone here less than 90 days sober? And to raise my hand then in front mm -hmm. of people, oh, it was hard. But <clears throat> I also knew that that pride is a big, you know, it's a big motivator. False pride is a big motivator for me to keep drinking so that mm -hmm. I can, you know, have that like release valve <clears throat> for, um, or when, <clears throat> sorry guys, I've been sick, so I've got like this. Mm -hmm. Same, I'm same. Oh. So yeah, I apologize as well. <clears throat> I'm a little coffee and clearing my throat. Yeah, but go ahead. Too. But um, you know, I I would get filled up with pressure that I would put on myself, and then my release valve was drinking. So like, I understood that I had to go in there and swallow my pride, as they say. 
Um, but at the same time, it was really, really hard. I, I did not pick up chips my second time around. Um, mm. cause it, it was just, it was, it was embarrassing. You were beat up. You were beating yourself up. Definitely. Yeah. Even, even though like, you know, this is the crazy thing I think about this experience for I probably most of us is that logically we get it. You know, we don't ever, I don't ever look at someone walking in the rooms from a relapse and think anything, but oh, man, I'm so glad you're back. It's good to see you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So like right. why, intellectually we get it, but in our hearts, it's a totally different feeling and experience. Mm-hmm. I think, I think from, 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 um, I didn't understand a lot about the program until I started sponsoring women. And when I, that, 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 that act that you took, that brave act that you did by saying that you were a newcomer again, I know that some people I've heard look at it like, you know, you're embarrassing that person and why are you making them say that? And all this is is putting you in your place and women are already down enough with their drinking and feeling bad about themselves. But I, I finally could understand it being a sponsor, being like, you need that person to be like 100% honest. It's for themselves. It's, f- mm-hmm. it's not for anybody in the room, although it does inform a room so that you can get support. Yeah. But it's really like, are you ready to be honest with yourself finally? Yeah. And it's really necessary. So um, when someone doesn't want to do that act or doesn't want to introduce themselves as a newcomer or they, it's really, it's, it's, um, it's all, and it's all for that person. It's all, it's not for anybody else in the rooms, but, the, but you. And so it's so brave. And that's why when I see it, I respect it so much, have so much Appreciate compassion, you. so much compassion, because I, I imagine how hard that is to say that and to have to keep saying it. I, we only do it for 30 days here, introduce as a newcomer, but to do it for 90 days, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it's <clears throat> such a, it's such a leap of faith that, that I think that we take to go in there and, you know, it's, it's being able for me, it was being able to finally say like, I'm going to let everybody see the truth about me because hiding was just such a big part of who I was giving this presentation of self that was not really how I felt. Um, and so always feeling disconnected and alienated from other people, like as if that's their fault that I'm not being honest. Right. (laughs) Right. And so doing that got me, it's like exposure therapy. It got me really used to being like telling the truth and being seen Mm. and heard. Yeah. 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 Well, that, that, that we talk about that a lot about that. I feel like that's the magic, right. To be, and not because you can be seen and heard and not be truthful. Right. But to be, I always say like to be accurately seen and heard is kind of the, and that's up to you. You know, that's up to mm-hmm. me when I go in those rooms, what I say and what I represent myself as. Um, I, that's what I find so, um, that's why I kept going back because people, I had never heard people talk like they talked in the rooms. Like I never, never, never heard it. So I, 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 I was like intoxicated by the truth. I was like, I assume they were all telling the truth. I mean, maybe they weren't. But to me, I was like, I've never heard people talk like this. I want to go back and hear what so-and-so is going to say tomorrow. And that's how I that's how I kept going in the beginning, was just kind of like exploring other people's stories and, and pulling out the things that related to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm such a lover of story. And, you know, even before the rooms, I... I just wholeheartedly believe that story saves us and connects us. And like, it is powerful. 
So that part of the rooms, like, it was an immediate attraction of like, oh my goodness, I'm going to go back and hear all the dirt. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was also really good preparation for how I live my life now, which is, you know, out of the rooms completely open. Like I'm, I'm out at work. I'm out, um, in my daily life. Like I, it prepped me to have zero shame about my history because I think it's so important that because I can, not everybody should, you know, everybody decides their own level of disclosure, but because I can, it's important to me to say, you know, this is also what an alcoholic looks like because I think we have such, um, narrow perceptions about what that is. Mm-hmm. Well, and isn't it important to feel integrated that way too? I mean, that's what it is for me. It's like, I can't be, um, you know, in recovery with you guys and then outside of you guys, um, pretend like I'm something other than that. Yeah. I don't feel integrated. I don't feel like one complete person. <clears throat> yeah. I, and I, you know, I, I just want to like pause and <clears throat> say that it, it doesn't work that way for everybody. So like if anyone's listening, True. you know, and then, and also I didn't come out right away. It's not something I did in my early sobriety. So, uh, <laughs> like I wasn't out at, I was probably like a good two years sober before I made the decision. Um, and I think that's important because we are so raw and still trying to regain our equilibrium early on, you know, not saying that people shouldn't come out early. Like if you want to, and you can, it's possible in your life, but you know, also don't feel pressured to like, wait till your intuition and that inner voice says that you want to. Right. Right. I mean, there's something about showing your gaping wound, you know, um, not everybody is ready to see that a and B, um, (laughs) you know, you might want to wait until it's healed a bit right before you expose it. Um, because yeah, yeah, you don't always know how you're going to be received. So yeah, I didn't like to start, you know, um, showing that side of myself right away either but but there is something now that I can say about feeling integrated that um that you know is really important to me now but you're right that's very important to say and there's also like now that it's been a little bit there's a little bit of joy I get out of like the shock of it because I think people again like challenging those perceptions like I have a really good friend who's a now a professional woman and like is excelling in her career, but her story is one of like some, you know, pretty intense heroin addiction. And so like, I love the, the joy of showing up and being like, yeah, I was kind of a raging alcoholic (laughs) 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 because that's not at all who I am now. And so like watching that surprise with people, I get a little, you know, maybe devious glee out of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right. The surprise on their face because, okay. So this, this leads to my question I have for you. And I was, I was doing some research on you. And um, you wrote for Clean and Sober um, for the for Chris Aguirre and his website. And you touched on um, this cultural image of the neighborhood drunk. And mm-hmm. I was my I, I know women predominantly listen to this podcast and only women are in our secret Facebook group. So I'm going to gear this question towards women. But I know it could be for men, too. Um, why do you think that that cultural image is tripping up women from getting sober or getting into the rooms or finding some kind of modality to get help? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I'll just speak from me. So I had, because, I mean, again, like 
I had those markers that I thought those goalposts, right, of alcoholism. And if so, like one of them would be for me, like, oh, if I got a DUI and then if I got a DUI, I would have just like moved the goalposts further and been like, maybe if I get two DUIs. But I think what I what I've observed and for myself is that, you know, I kept so much of that hidden and um, a lot of the women that I see and know we are high functioning. So like we are the people who get shit done. And I think that we can hide from that for or behind that a really long time. And I think that when we're looking, I mean, again, like we've been talking in the private Facebook group about the, the wine culture and drinking culture around motherhood. And so when all of these things in the culture are telling you that alcoholics are male, they sleep in the gutter, they um, wreck their lives, they don't have jobs, they have, um, and then on the flip side of that, you deserve to drink, you, uh, you have kids, like, oh God, drink that away. And all these things reinforcing, it's, I think it can reinforce what internally we already think, which is, oh God, please don't let me have a drinking problem. Yeah. Because that's like the worst yeah. thing ever, right? I could be, I couldn't, yeah. I, I don't want to be like that, whatever that mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's not just the stigma of it, but the stigma of a woman not, you know, being not having her shit together in public, you know, being messy, be like, I mean, SNL has that skit about like the crazy drunk girl, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it's funny because it's obscene. Like it, it goes in the face of how women are supposed to act and it's messy. We're not supposed to be messy and loud and all of those things. So it's not just like, Ooh, the gross alcoholic. It's like, Oh my God, women aren't supposed to act that way, period. Whether they're drunk or sober or not. Right. I've never seen that skit, but somehow I know it, Jamie. <laughs> so, <laughs> somehow I know. I already know that skit without having seen it. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> and I know I've, I've acted like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I, I think that we can't get in the, um, any kind of help because we don't want to admit that there's a problem. And if we don't look like this kind of neighborhood drunk or this person that you see in movies or TV shows or, or things that are making a stereotype um, of an alcoholic, like I think God, that rejection of that whole, like it couldn't possibly be me. I only drink wine. I only drink specialty cocktails. I only, you know, whatever, whatever we're telling ourselves that that couldn't possibly be me. So I love how the conversation is changing and I love how, how you're writing about it. And I like, I like reading, um, in this connection with all of these other women in our group, you know, we're hearing stories and that we're not alone. Yeah. And I, that is what, so like, I mean, in 2014, I couldn't find anybody like me, you know, telling a story that was similar to mine. I had a really hard time recognizing myself in what was out there. And now that's not the case at all. I mean, we are right. a chorus of voices now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that, is... that phrase. That's beautiful, Jamie. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I like that <laughs> yes. a lot. I can tell you're a writer, Jamie. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, where do you want to go, Sandra? I know we have well, lots of questions Jamie, for her. There's a lot. Yeah. So what do you think? Yeah. So we have to address the elephant in the room. Um. And you've recently um, lost 
people in your family and um, we only know this because we are in secret Facebook groups together and you've actually written about it too on your site uh, recently. Um, you wrote a beautiful essay on the neutral ground.net. Um, but can you talk about that a little bit um, as much as you are ready to talk about or that you like to talk about? I know you've just lost your mom and your grandma in a horrible tragedy. When was that? Like two months ago? Has yeah. it been two months? It's been about a month and a half. A um, month and a half. On... On February 3rd, my my brother and my stepdad were visiting my mom in Florida where she was staying with my grandmother and my brother was driving. He's he's only 23 and he what for me like in addition to just the tragedy of it, this part breaks my heart. He yeah. is such a cautious driver. Out of all like we have a middle brother who's like the really adventurous son and <laughs> he's like you know, flipped a car before and like walked out and been fine. Um, but our youngest brother, I mean, he's just, he's just a sensitive, cautious young man. Um, but he was driving and he made a left-hand turn when he thought he had an arrow. Um, he wasn't familiar with the roads in Florida, which is like, it was a three-lane highway that was also in um, a residential area. So like, we don't have those where he's from, mm -hmm. meaning that you can go 65 and then like suddenly someone's slowing down to turn into lows, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so he made that left-hand turn and, and someone hit, uh, hit my mom's side. She, my mom was on the passenger side and flipped the van and then another car hit the roof mm -hmm. and it killed my mom instantly. And for that, I'm extraordinarily grateful. She did not suffer. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother um, lived another day and I actually got to speak with her um, by phone. They tracked me down because my grandma and my brother were airlifted to the same trauma hospital. And my brother had my phone number on him. And so they called me and I got to speak to my grandma. And, you know, uh, this I, this may be crass to people, but uh, my grandma is like textbook untreated Al-Anon, as they say. And she's on the phone telling me, it's okay, I'm okay, don't worry, everything's fine. Um, mm. it, but, I, you know, I did get to tell her I loved her. And, you know, again, like there are, I think what, what gets me through this are like those little blessings. And one of the big blessings is, is that they thought my brother had internal injuries, and he didn't. And so, I mean, he walked, I could have lost him too, and I didn't. Mm. And for that, man, I, to not, to, to have him still with me is such a blessing. And for my mom, my mom, I mean, I, I love my mom and daily grieve the loss of her. She and I had an extremely complicated relationship. Um, she had her own addictions all throughout her life. Early in my childhood, it was alcohol. At times, at brief periods, it was cocaine. But at the end of her life, it was food. And so she died at 450 pounds and mm -hmm. she was only five one. Um, so there's also a sense of relief in her release from that body and that suffering. Mm, yeah. And in that, you know, she, she didn't have to go, you know, go back to that I don't want to say failure. Failure seems like too strong of a word, but um, 
you know, she didn't have to keep going in the hopeless way that she was. She really didn't see a way out of um, the kind of prison that she had created for herself with her body. Mm. And, yeah. (laughs) Well, I have to ask, I mean, did you ever think about drinking after that happened? So I come from a, you know, I get, I come by my addictions, honestly, like my, my, almost my entire family, um, uses or have used in some way. So when I didn't think about drinking just because I, I don't know, I think I'm far enough removed that like, even the taste of it is like, Ooh, that's going to taste yeah. gross. Yeah. But when I was, um, so my husband and I immediately drove to Florida to, to be with my stepdad and my brother and um, my other brother was on his way, but in my grandma's house, you know, there were there were pills everywhere. Because of my mom's size, she was on a lot of pain pills, a lot of um, hydrocodone. And because we'd lost my grandfather about three months before that of cancer, there was morphine in the house. Mm-hmm. And I would be a total liar if I did not say that I wasn't thinking about that almost constantly. <coughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I had my husband there. And so I would just go tell him, I'd be like, I'm thinking about this. And he would go, that's a terrible idea, Jamie. And just hearing that, I'd be like, oh, yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Glad you bounced that off him, Jamie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, I know sometimes I say things to my husband and he's like, you really think that? You know, it's almost like, what? What? How do you go there? But yeah, it's good to have another voice of reason, right? Someone to to share this with. And then because, I mean, like I've said, there's addiction in my family. There were other members there that were, it was, you know, it was a very visual reminder of like, this is progressive for me and this is where this ends up. So if I, you know, I pick up those pills today, I'm going down the road that, that they have gone down as well. And so I could, you know, I can see that. It was almost like looking in the mirror of myself in the future if I took that road. Well, and it's not surprising that people do that though, right? I mean, it's, you know... I, I mean, a lot of us, I think even too, when we're sober, we think, well, I won't drink unless this happens, then, you know, who would blame me for drinking or who would blame me for checking out this way? Um, So it's not, you know, it's not that surprising that, that we would turn to that. What's surprising is that we don't. Yeah. Yes. And I'm, you know, one of the, so one of the things a friend of mine said that has really stuck with me is that I have never been more prepared in my life to handle this. Mm. And I really believe that's true because I, you know, I had such a firm recovery and recovery community before this happened. You know, I was in therapy, so I had someone to turn to there. Um, you know, my, my husband and I have done a lot of repairing of our relationships. So like everything was in place that could help me live through that moment. Yeah. I, 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 that resonates with me, Jamie. Yeah. Having enough sobriety under my belt. Um, when I, when I lost my best friend, like I felt really sturdy, even though it was really a screwed up situation, right? Like really the worst of the worst, but somehow I felt almost like I had a superpower, um, during that time. Like I felt like, okay, I'm just going to be of service. I'm just going to do what I need to do. And that, I know that gets thrown around a lot and it seems like 
sometimes I can even, you know, border on being a martyr, like, oh, I'm just going to be of service. But that having a purpose is more what it was. Like I had a purpose, like I need to do this. I need to take care of that. I need to make sure the family is fed. I need to make sure, you know, whatever it was, it gave me a job so that I didn't think about drinking. Yeah. And I, so I get that, like you had this foundation that you've created from your community, your therapist, working with your husband, like you were supported, you were maybe not ready for it. Cause how is anybody ready for things like this, but that you, that you had a foundation. Yeah. And I was also, you know, it was, it was almost like, you know, getting knocked back. It was almost like the car hit me in the way that Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I, I was just, it was like the breath was knocked out of me. And so I had all these people who just showed up and were like, let me help you. And for, I think the first time in my entire life, I said, yes, please. Mm -hmm. Um, so when, you know, people would, then I started to ask for help too. So like when I came, you know, in Florida, I felt very much, I had a purpose. I had to take care of my mom's things. I had to get her body cremated, you know, I had to do all that, all that task stuff that like, I love, like, Oh, give me some lists and I will work mm-hmm. through them. Girl, you're <laughs> speaking then, my language. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. When you talk about all the paper products and the pens and I'm like, yes, yeah. yes, girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's my I, happy place. When, when I came back, um, you know, I didn't have those things anymore. And I was just, you know, I was just, in, I was in shock. And so when people said, can I make you dinner? I would, I would never have said yes before. I would have been, I would have turned that around and been like, no, let me make you dinner. Right. You could receive, you could receive. Yeah. And, and so I, you know, I did. And, and I, I even started asking for help and that's, this is the miracle for me that I was able to do that in this situation. Like I couldn't quite drive when I got back. My, mm. my mind was just scrambled. Um, there's a, there's a woman in our group who lost her partner a year ago unexpectedly. And I am, I will be forever grateful for her reaching out and texting me and giving me this like really great advice about like, Hey, you're going to be really confused. Your mind is, is trying to make sense of a world that doesn't make sense. So like if other people can drive you, let them. And I was like, Oh, this is why I don't know what to do at a stop sign. (laughs) Yeah. And so God, I, I never would have thought of that, but we do, we feel like we should be just be able to get on with our regular, regularly scheduled program. Right. Even right. after a tragedy. Yeah. And I, and I did, I was like, why don't I feel normal yet? It's been two weeks and everyone around me is like, okay, you know, yeah. let's be patient, have some compassion <laughs> for yourself. Yeah. 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 I, I was taken by um, my gratitude list around the time that my friend passed away was just, I was really grateful for the kindness of strangers. And that mm-hmm. meant strangers on the internet too, like people that were being kind and sending little notes. Um, but just people that I didn't know that would like, we'd show up at the hospital and like food would just be there, appear magically, and then it would be all cleaned up magically. Like there's some people on a, I guess there was a big list, a spreadsheet. Some people were taking shifts. I have no idea, but it's like the kindness of others during that time. I just remember being so grateful that I didn't have to think, you know, how, because nobody eats. There's no, there's no time to think about eating. Right. So just the, that, that, that these people extend these niceties and it really informed me for how to maybe be there for someone else when this happens, you know, yes. it gave me an insight that I'm part of this uh, club that I, I wasn't part of before, never really lost anybody close to me. So yeah, I was, it was, um, new information. 
this whole experience has taught me how to take care of people in ways that I didn't know before. Like it, when we were at my grandma's house, you know, four neighbors brought fried chicken, you know, like every other night. And I, I was really like, it was this moment of like, oh, this is what you do. This is why you do this when, when someone passes, because none of us could think about like, think about how to get food. Like right. wasn't, it wasn't on the table. So, I, yeah. you know, so that's a, it's, really strange how how much ingratitude I've been for this experience because like that I'm grateful for that I now know how to take care of others because people showed me mm. yeah things and that you never thought you'd be grateful for the yeah gifts that come out of out of something something tragic and mm. I mean this is the this is worst case scenario for me like I have feared losing because of my mom's weight and her health issues like I have feared losing her for the past 10 years so this this was it. And, and then seeing that I could survive it. Hmm. And the, the thing, the thing about the kindness of strangers, like this is one of my, my favorite stories about this whole experience is that when I, we were in Florida, suddenly a GoFundMe account appeared and it was started by my amazing boss at work and it ballooned. Um, <coughs> people ended up raising like, you know, I think up to almost $5,000 and my family does not have money. I mean, they, my dad's on disability. My mom was on social security. Like they just didn't have a lot. And so we were able to use that to cremate her, to pay for my brother to fly home, who was deathly afraid of being in cars after that, of course. Mm. And when I'm telling my dad what's happening, you know, because the family has been almost in a lifetime of addiction and addiction, you deal with a lot of paranoia and the world's out to get me. And that's kind of the outlook that that we get when we're in our addictions. And I'm telling him like, you know, these people are doing this for us. Cause he's like, how am I going to pay you for your mom, you know, your mom's cremation. And I'm like, these people are, are doing this. And he is just in tears mm-hmm. saying, how am I, how am I going to pay all these people back? And I'm like, no, that's not what this is. The, yeah. This is a kindness. This is generosity. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> I need a minute here. <laughs> oh. That's so yeah, that, beautiful. It is. It it was just. It was. I don't know. It was a gift that I feel like because of the people in my life, I was able to give him to show. Like, no, people are good. Like, they're good and they love us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Jamie. <clears throat> um. Switch. I'm not going to switch gears too much, but I wanted. I did have a question I wanted to ask about the women um, in your family. Mm-hmm. Um, since we're talking about this, you. Um, I, I read it um, in a interview that you did with Liv Pinelli, who was on mm-hmm. our show, and you wrote that um, I grew up witnessing a kind of powerlessness, particularly among the women, who I can now see more clearly as burdened with tending the threads that kept our families together. That really spoke to me, like, and that I'm, I'm curious, you say you could see it more clearly now. Is that because of your sobriety that you can kind of look at your family history and look at things um, with a different perspective? Yes. Yeah. Um, getting, I often say that getting sober gave me a compassion for my mother. I did not have before that. Um, I could, see how my depression cycles and that would come out as, you know, criticism and meanness. 
identical, like it was identical. It mirrored hers. Mm -hmm. And what I, you know, when I was younger, what I saw was my mom and my grandma and, you know, some of my aunts who were in difficult marriages, they were ruled by these like little tyrant men who would, you know, like we would have to fold my dad's socks a certain way or he would blow up or we would we would have to crease his pants a certain way and like I just remember being really young and being like that I will never fucking put up with this mm-hmm. and I got you know I got older and, and and I got sober and I started to see the strength that it took to be my mom and to be in in you know she loved my dad my I just to be clear he's my stepdad but I call him my dad um he's been mm-hmm. around since I was very young you know, she loved him, but at the same time, like he was difficult to live with. And so I could recognize the strength it took to try to create a home and a lot of chaos for three kids on very little money. Hmm. And, and that, that really shifted for me in sobriety. It, it just gave me so much more compassion for her and, and appreciation of her strength where I thought she was very weak before for tolerating being yelled at or tolerating you know, him ruling the house. And, you know, same with my grandma. You know, mm-hmm. one of the one of the greatest gifts that I got was in May of 2017, I went back to my grandparents as an adult. And it was the only time I've really had with them that it was just me and them. And I got, I, I just started asking them, I was like, tell me everything. Tell me your life stories, you know? And I got to hear my grandpa talk about lying about his age so he could get a job on the docks in East St. Louis and lying about having a license so he could drive the meat truck. <laughs> you know, at age 15, but I also got to hear from my grandma and, um, she had a child out of a wedlock at 15, which, you know, during that time it was not done. And she was, she was, she got to stay with her family, but she was not welcomed by her family. And so she married my grandpa and had four more kids really quickly. And I asked her what that was like. And she, she said, it was, like babies were hanging off of me all the time and I couldn't make them stop coming. And it was this Mm. moment of like, Oh my God, the strength it took to endure that when you felt you had no other choices. Yeah. The perspective shift. Yeah. Of sobriety. Yeah. 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 I had a similar experience. Um, uh, when it came to my father and having compassion for him, and I only I only got to that place through sobriety as well, and actually through doing the steps. But because um, I had so many resentments against him my oh. whole life as well, you know, if you would have asked me, I would have always, you know, blamed uh, my the core of my drinking on him and the way I was raised and. Um, same. I, I came to have some compassion around him because, you know, around uh, how he was raised and and how he was just doing the best he could with what he had. Right. Yeah. And just that such a big realization. That was such a big thing that I I had a big epiphany that I came to when I got sober and it allowed me to have, uh, some, a lot of compassion and also forgiveness, um, around him and, and, you know, in his actions and anyway, um, I can really, really relate to that. 
it, it the the com- the compassion part too was it sobriety allowed me to make the connections that I couldn't make like I blamed uh, in a similar way like I blamed not my drinking so much because I was so like determined to not have a problem with drinking, but you know, my depression or my sadness or what I would always call like, I'm so fucked up. I I would attribute that to my mom's behavior in my early life. And, you know, getting sober allowed me to see this like contextual network in our family where like talking to my grandparents, they would never say this person's an alcoholic that like, that's not in their vocabulary. But they would say like, oh, yeah, your, you know, your grandpa's dad would disappear on Friday, spend all the family's money and then show up, you know, on Monday. And it's just I started to see the this context in which my mom was raised and how it was largely inevitable that both of us had struggles with addiction. And that gave me a lot of compassion for her as well. Yeah, except accepting that we have a problem and the work that we're doing. Um, yeah, it, can, it just you start seeing your life differently. You know, you just start glimpsing things and putting, like you said, putting those things together contextually or putting like the missing pieces and they're like, oh, yeah. Like you said, <laughs> grandpa went missing on Friday nights. Yeah, my grandpa <laughs> went missing on Friday nights, too, my mom said, you know, and my grandma would have to go yeah. find them. And that they were just humans, you know, yeah. just human beings that, that uh, yeah. doing the best they could. That was it's just such an aha moment for me because we we because before that they were my parents mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> until I contextualized them like you said they were my parents and they you know failed me somehow yeah um, yeah Mm. And it, there's there's also like I think that I had this expectation that because she was my parent or because they were my grandparents, like they were supposed to, you know, like do the best practices for parenting, like as if that concept was accessible to them <laughs> instead of what you just said, which is like, oh, man, they were human, like dealing with their the pressures of raising five kids or three kids. And like, you know, th- I'm pretty sure they probably had depression, too. And like how that our best intentions can often be fucked up by our humanity every time. Right. Yeah, you're right. And, and it wasn't until I think I worked the steps and I was on, I think, step six when I was writing about judgment. And I just realized how much I was judging, well, everyone, but <laughs> in particular, my mother, right, and my father. And Sandra, talking to Sandra, too, is so helpful for me, um, especially about dads. And you helped me early on, Sandra, with like just talking about how you can find compassion for them and and forgiveness and um, how you found it. And that helped me to work on that with my own father. And just that's what's like hearing these stories and hearing people on podcasts or in the rooms or just someone that's sober that you can kind of glean some kind of little nugget from. And that's why I love having these conversations, you know, because I learn so much. I learned so much yeah. from all the women that I've been um, that we've been chatting with, men and women. I feel I feel so lucky in that I got this perspective. I had a few years to really like work with living amends with my mom. Like we had a we had a tough relationship, and she she often brought out the worst in me, and I think I often brought out the worst in her. But I had a few years before she died where you know I made a concerted effort to not be an asshole to her. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Not everybody can say that yeah. if they've had a, you know, a, a, a rocky relationship with a parent. So, 
Yeah. That is the gift. Can um, I, I'm, yeah, I kind of want to, I want to talk a little bit about something that has surprised the shit out of me. Yes. <laughs> about this experience. And that is related to spirituality. Um, I struggled with that um, concept completely. Like I wasn't really raised with God in the house. I, I Christianity doesn't speak to me. Um, and so in that part of the 12 step program, I would always, you know, I would make an effort, but I'd be like, I feel nothing. There is no connection for me to this higher power shit. Like I just, I don't get it. Um, and I, I, I don't want to say I felt left out, but I just sort of felt like this is a leap I can't make. And my mom dying completely erased that immediately because I could suddenly really understand in a very visceral way that my mom was with me, that mm -hmm. I could talk to her, that she wasn't completely gone. Um, I got it. And so like that, that has blown up my spiritual practice that like I sit at, at my altar I talk to my mom, I talk to my grandma, it's opened up, it's like allowed me to make the leap of that there's something bigger than me that I can connect to. I always believed that there was something bigger than me, like the universe is it's fucking huge, but I couldn't connect to it. And my mom's death has allowed me to do that. And that is the most surprising thing about this whole experience. Wow. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't connect either, Jamie. So I get that, and I didn't want to be fake about it, right? Yeah, I want to be honest because yeah. now you're being honest with yourself. So for you to really say that and be like, "I not feeling my, I'm not feeling it," <laughs> you have to say that when you're <laughs> when you're not feeling it. You just have to be honest. But you're right. This experience, um, that was an opportunity for you to 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 feel differently about it. I imagine. Yeah, like I like I get it. It's it, there's something that it opened up about the interconnectivity between us and everything of like you know, I don't know what that higher power is. I don't I you know, I know I don't necessarily like think that there's like a, a being that has my best interests at heart, but like I can feel the energy of connectedness and I can wrap my head around trying to connect to that energy. And it it feels awesome. Mm. Yeah, and it's like your light bulb went on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't happen just right away. Someone someone in the rooms early on, to, for me, um, when we went out to coffee one day, and I was basically just saying that, like, I'm not going to fake having a higher power. Like, that would, yeah. be, that would be the worst to me because I've been a faker for my whole life. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to fake that in here. I'm not going to do that. And, um, and she just said, well, what about just thinking about being your higher self? And I was like, yeah. oh, well, me, yeah, because it's all about me. So, yeah, okay, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I like that idea. But it helped bridge a gap until I did figure out the higher power component for me. But it helped me kind of go, yeah, I can aspire to be my higher self. And when I'm my higher self, I'm kinder to myself. I'm more loving. I So it just was like this little bridge for me that helped me get through it because it, I didn't want to lie and say that I, I had this higher power or this belief in God. You know, I could still be honest and still search, but it is nice when it clicks, right? 
Yeah, I nice. think you guys are the ones who were talking, who like kind of named it, like listening to your intuition. And that was during yeah. a time where like I couldn't get it. And I was like, oh, that makes total sense to me. <laughs> like that you're mm-hmm. tapping into your inner self, your higher self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. My con, I've always had a higher power, I think. Um, but I always called that before when I was drinking, I I recently called it like my up shit creek god. I had that god like when I was up shit creek. Yes. <laughs> and um, you know, woo, thank you god for getting me home safely on that, you know, when I chose to drive after, you know, drinking five glasses of wine, you know, that god. Um, I had that god always. But my my concept of of a higher power definitely changed after I got sober and it did it became more of a more of a quiet knowing intuition um instead of you know somebody that I just needed to have my back right yeah (laughs) when you're up shit creek And I love that description of it, the the quiet knowing, because like, I can't, I mean, I drowned that voice where it was like, shut up, this is what we're doing. We're mm-hmm. going to drink all right. this beer, be quiet, we're fine. Yeah, don't want to hear that voice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, mm. I mean, I can't imagine what that poor voice was trying to tell me all those years where I was drowning it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Hmm. Well, I, I was going to ask, and maybe um, I know we have some, some questions about creativity and some things I know Sandra wants to ask, but I, I thought maybe we could start that conversation with asking you, and if you could share with our listeners, um, what the neutral ground is, and what was your impetus to create it? So the, <clears throat> I started, so the woman that I started the neutral ground with, her name is Nikki Mayu, and she is phenomenal. And we met in the MFA program and we were, we had both been out of it for a while and I had been chasing my ego, um, in terms of writing where it was all about, you know, publication and production and making myself like fucking miserable. Like I had sucked every ounce of joy out of writing that I possibly could. And I got to this place where I was like, I don't, I don't want to be this anymore. Like I want to find the joy that I used to have. And she was in a similar place. And Nikki's not in recovery. Um, she's one of those weird people that'll leave a drink on the table like half full, and I don't get it. But mm-hmm. she had um, a, a very fundamentalist Christian upbringing. So we always joke that she's kind of in recovery for that. <laughs> <laughs> and we found that, you know, we were really on similar paths um, in our lives of just trying to like shed away the things that we kept hidden from people and shed away the the shoulds like the shooting our pants that we should be this way or we should act this way and like really getting down to the core of who we were and so we had always wanted to work together and she's also a phenomenal photographer and I don't have that visual sense like I'm just I'm just words unfortunately um, so we were like, you know, let's, let's just get back to the joy. And we weren't really thinking about what we were going to do with it or if people would even read it. <laughs> and we just started writing about the things that scared the shit out of us. Mm. And it was, I was, it was just so therapeutic to do that. And we, I, th- I mean, I don't want to speak for her, but I, I feel like 
we both have gotten to a place where we're being extremely honest, um, but also like playing with the beauty of words and language and getting back to that place, like pre the business of writing, like before we even understood how that worked and back to just like loving the act of creativity. Um, so we now, we, for a while, we stuck to a really strict once a week schedule, but um, Nikki is a mother of two young children and works a really intense job. Um, and I don't have any kids, but I work a pretty intense job. So we, we post intermittently and our philosophy is that we're really aiming for quality pieces to share with people. Oh, so, so there's just no agenda for it. You're not seeking outside affirmation. It's just like a creativity for creativity's sake yeah and I it got me like the act of doing it and then people responding it made me remember like oh this is also why I write it's to connect to other people right and it gave me that really important piece that I wasn't getting chasing the business side that it it put it back into perspective of like it's just me and the words, and then when if it resonates with someone, them coming in and saying, "Hey, my hands up too, me too," and man, I mean that was just that was life changing for me. So yeah, like when there there's no agenda, we're not selling anything. Like we're really just um, we want to connect with other people, and we want to hear their stories, and um, we want it to be a place where like we say hard, honest things. Right. Well, and it, there's something about it too when you're not waiting for some someone's permission to write you're just yeah. just g- giving yourself the permission and you can because there you know we have the beautiful internet and you can just publish when you want to when you feel the calling yeah and it it also it, for me it came out of this you know this sort of like long sequence of events that i i did publish you know and and I didn't, it it was like almost an unhealthy drug. Like I would get something accepted and then I would enjoy it for like three seconds. Um, I would most enjoy telling other people about it. Like it was an ego thing. And then I would immediately be like, well, now I have to publish something else. And Mm -hmm. then, and I, and like, I could, I could feel what that was feeding in me. And then I watched this acquaintance go through his publication journey, which from the outside would be like what all of us who chase this stuff like really, really want, you know, like he got reviewed the New York times. He got, you know, interviews places and, and all of that outside validation. Um, and you know, again, I don't want to speak for him, but I think that he would probably say that it it wasn't a great experience for him, that it it didn't fulfill what he thought it was going to fulfill. And it was this really just eye opening moment for me where I was like, if I don't get right with myself, if I don't, get right with my, you know, my creative practices. And if this isn't what sustains me, no amount of outside validation is going to, is going to be okay. Like I will go through all of that and no matter what I get, it will not be enough. And I will keep feeding this monster. Mm. (sighs) Okay. Well, you know, but intuitively you can know that. And at the same time, (laughs) you still want, what what uh, Sam Lamott said kept saying all the cash and prizes. Yeah. Oh, I still want it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I still yeah. Want it. Um, 
but I also like I'm better and I'm you know it's not as if like well now I just don't try to publish at all but I do I do try to publish but now um I'm a lot kinder to myself like it took me a year to write my last long form essay that I sent out for publication and I would say five years ago I would be trashing myself for that for taking so long and now I'm a lot kinder and more compassionate I'm like you know I work a lot and I love my job and that is okay that it takes me a year to write something really beautiful because I still wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, someone recently said on Instagram when we were trading comments and she said like, I feel like I've been, I have been, she's been writing a blog for 10 years. And so have I, <laughs> she says, I feel like I've been giving myself homework for 10 years. Like <laughs> that's what I feel like. I'm like, yeah, but it's like homework you give yourself like that. What could be better? I mean, you don't want homework from somebody else, right? You reject it. But so like your blog or this creation that you guys have made, it's like, it's like your homework. It's like the, the homework that you want to do and that you, you know, feel called to do. It, it also saved me in during the, you know, my, in the direct aftermath of my mom and grandma dying, I was able to share on Instagram um, what I was feeling and the immense support that I got back. I mean, really like from ever, from everywhere, people I knew, people I didn't know in person. And it felt like I was just being carried along Mm -hmm. by all of these hands. Yeah. Yeah. I know sometimes, um, and I don't even know if I did Jamie or not. Sometimes I, I can read your words and, and not that I can't say anything. I can't comment or say anything like, you know, I shut down because it touches Why? so deeply just because oh. it touches so deeply and it makes me, um, I don't know. I don't know. Just that connection of the grief. I feel like I don't have any words to say, which I don't know right. if that's good or bad or whatever, but I notice that I do that sometimes. And, and when I'm ready, like, I think I sent you something yesterday. I'm like, Hey, how about this? I'm ready to engage, yeah. but it's hard. It's, it's still, it's, it's grief is weird. You know what my husband, what my husband says is when are you going to write something happy? <laughs> and I'm like never. <laughs> I like that. That's funny. Well, I notice on so, so no go ahead. I was just going to say that you know writing's where I process that stuff so that I can be out in the world and not like you know weeping and telling like a coworker you know my deep dark depressive feelings like writing's where I process that stuff so I'm sure it comes out that like you know it comes out darker than I live in my daily life right yeah it's a tool like art and creativity and writing and making and yes all of that I feel like is such a beautiful way to kind of process um, what we're feeling. I mean, that's what we like to talk about on here is just like, well, how do you find your way? Um, and then you end up, it's like this healing process for me when I'm writing or painting or drawing or whatever it is. It's, it's like, it's like I'm sewing myself up a little bit. Yeah, you know? exactly. I'm, I'm not as undone as I, as I was. Yeah. I was going to say that, so that for our listeners, the neutral ground is your website. Yes. And at the bottom, I notice um, that people can send in maybe if they a prompt or something, maybe something that you'd like they want to see you write about. It's not for them to yeah. guest post, but it's for you to to say, like, what do you want me to riff on? Like, what are you what are you interested in? What are you what's a topic? So if it speaks to you, you'll you you push off from there. Is that how that works or? Yeah, yeah, we um, I mean, again, it's that connection thing. So 
I, I, you know, one of my favorites is a woman wrote in and, you know, asked like, can you recommend some things in early sobriety? And then another one was, you know, what do you do when you have got a partner who's drinking? What if you're the one who's not drinking, but you're living with someone who is? And, you know, those have been a couple of my favorite posts to write. Um, but we do also take guest posts. Uh, we are both really committed to making the neutral ground, you know, more diverse with, uh, you know, a larger spectrum of people. And we want to demonstrate, um, you know, the wide spectrum of how people live. So like we just had a guest post by um, Austin. I think it's probably about a couple of weeks old. They're talking about um, how you set boundaries in polyamory to have a successful polyamorous life. Oh, gosh. Interesting. I want to read that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to read that. Well, that's inter- th- that's great that you can that you can feel those quite those things, because not everybody is a writer, right? Like not everybody um, can put their thoughts into those um, beautiful ways that you can, you know, like not everybody has that gift. And so it's nice that you can turn those around and turn them over in your head and see what your take is on them and share those. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoy doing that. I want to read the one about the normie. So is your husband a normie? Um, not really. Uh, so we were, we've been together for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we moved in together at, uh, I was 18 and it's because his parents were moving away and I was living with this older guy and like, it, you know, not a great idea. <laughs> and so we were like, okay, we're just friends. Let's move in together and we won't make out and, you know, do drugs together. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> the best laid plans. <laughs> and, and it was awesome. And we've, uh, you know, it's the thing that I think is maybe not talked about in the room so much is like some of my drinking and using history was like fucking fun and great. <laughs> I say it all the time, actually, because, yeah, I think that's important to say some yeah. I had some, I had a whole lot of fun. <laughs> I can't discount that. Yeah. And I think it's important not to, that it's important to not turn everything into this like dark episode. Like, did it turn dark? Hell yeah. Yeah. But right. There periods of time that were really fun. And, and so we, we moved in together, we drank and used for many years together. Um, and then he got an ulcer and stopped, which leads me to believe that he's not an alcoholic. Cause I think I would have kept going. <laughs> Right. Oh, for sure. Right. If I'm going to stop you. I'll show you. <laughs> yeah. He stopped drinking probably like seven years before I did. Um, and so we're both sober now, but uh, he doesn't work any kind of program or anything. But but a lot of those spiritual principles and practices that are in place in 12 Steps, he sort of came to intuitively. So it, it meshes. I mean, mm. he still, he thinks what I do was weird like just the other day he was like so you guys still have to go to meetings to not drink (laughs) like can't you just not drink and I'm like that's not what we're doing that's not what's happening here right that's what I used to think like I don't when I'd sit there and see people in the rooms for 30 plus years I'm like what are they still doing here like how depressing worst worst nightmare (laughs) like what do you mean you still have to go sit in the the rooms and later But I only got like after years of going, going, oh, it's the maintenance of your spiritual condition. It's the maintenance of, you know, your emotional well-being. It's the maintenance, maintenance, maintenance. Yeah. And unearthing all that shit that made us drink. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's some work to do. You just don't get it done in like a year. Yeah. The bottom. Yeah. 
cross the finish line. Right. He he does think it's super weird though. He's like that you just that we all like walk in rooms and tell strangers our like dirty laundry. <laughs> he thinks it's so bizarre. Yeah, my husband doesn't ask about it much at all. He did, I asked him if he wanted to go to a meeting with me once. We were we went to dinner. And um, I'd never been to this meeting. I knew it was like an eight o'clock meeting at this church. And so I said, do you want to, I said, since we're here, it was like 7.55, we got out of dinner. And I was like, I think I'm going to hit this meeting. You want to come with me? He's like, nope, I'll be at the bar next door. And I go, I'm telling, I go, I'm telling everybody on you when I go in there. I just want you to know. He's like, is that what you do? I'm like, no, I'm kidding. I'm effing with you. (laughs) You go to the bar. I'm going to go to the meeting. And yeah, okay. But he's a normie because he can go to a bar for one and leave. And I, that would be the evening for me. That would be all night. Yeah. Yeah. I've asked Mike, too, if he wanted to go with me. And he's like, oh, no, God, why? (laughs) (laughs) They don't know what they're missing, right, Jamie? They don't even know what they're missing. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah, my husband, he, he has a very close family member in recovery. So he... He gets it. He he un- t- completely understands. He's always like, "No, don't stop doing whatever you're doing. Please don't stop that." Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, that I think, as weird as as Mike thinks it is, that you know, I, I do this. He also, on the other hand, is like, "Oh God, I'm so glad you're sober. Uh, you're such yep, a better that's, person." That's my <laughs> husband as well. I remember one time, I the kids. Like it was the kids or something. I had just, I was at the end and I left in a huff and I came back to the house with a six pack of um, Topo Chico and you should have seen the look on his face. Oh, thank God. <laughs> that is a picture I can imagine right now. You and your cute self and your cute outfit getting out of your car, walking in the house with a six-pack of Topo Chico. That's fantastic. I'm going to the studio. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's actually, he's made a few comments, um, you know, since my mom passed he's he's said like wow I really this is not how I thought you'd be handling this he's like I I thought you'd be drinking again and like wrecking the house and smashing shit and and I'm like yeah I probably would have if I was still drinking like this would have been my excuse to like wreck everyone's life around me right oh the drama right like it just would have been all about me when I was when yeah it would have all have been mm-hmm. about like my grief and my 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 like I already told you I already deal with that so it's like drinking and grief no that wouldn't have been a good good combination yeah not at all um so Sandra I have a question but then I know we have to probably wrap this up pretty soon but yeah, go um, ahead. from your yeah. from reading some of your stuff, Jamie, I just because um, I'm a big routine person, it sounds like you like the paper products. Maybe you and I have a little connection here. Um, do you have daily practices that you do in sobriety that like is that going to spill into your three things or should we wait? I just I don't know. I, I just no. read about your practices was kind of part, part of your gig. And I just thought, oh, I want to share that with people. Um, no, it won't spill into my three things at okay. all. Um yeah, I do. I do. So they, you know, they vary um, because my schedule is, you know, can be kind of crazy with work. So my uh, 
you know, my morning ritual is the one that is sacrificed the most. Um, but in general, like I need to make my coffee and sit with my dog who I'm obsessed with. And she's like my little spirit animal. What's her name? Remind me. Her name is, uh, Rue, Rue. but we call her the wear pig. (laughs) (laughs) She's got a, she was born deformed. She's got a split nose. that makes her look like a pig. Oh, cutie. And she snorts. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so, so that's, you know, I, I really need about an hour of quiet time in the morning and that is like non-negotiable, but my evening practices are really consistent and I will, you know, sit at the altar that I've made with my mom and my grandma and I will um, ask, you know, a lot of times I'm talking to my mom, like, you know, how can a, a friend of mine lost her mother um, as well a while ago. And she said, I look to my mom to guide me in ways that she couldn't when she was alive because she was emotionally ill. And and that, oh my God, like that speaks to me so much. Like, and so like, I, I trust that, like, I trust that now that she has this wider perspective, wherever she is, that I can look to her for guidance that maybe she couldn't do when she was here. And so I do that. Um, and then I journal journaling every night is like, if I don't, there actually there isn't a time that I don't do that. That is like non-negotiable must happen. Hmm. Do you do it at a desk? Do you do it at on the couch? Do you do it in bed? Like what do you what's your thing? Or all of I it? Have, <laughs> I have I have done <laughs> I have done this the same way since I was probably seven or eight years old. I lay on my belly, I prop my head up on a pillow on my arm and um I, I handwrite in a notebook. And that is generally how I start most of my pieces. So like any generative writing, that's how I'm going to do it is there is something about that posture that connects me to whatever's inside that needs to make these words. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I, I start everything in handwritten and then eventually move to the computer. But even that I'll do laying down. Like I don't ever sit at a desk. <laughs> right. You're like, I want to be comfortable. Like, oh, that's, I love that. My mom got me this poster when I was a little kid that had a sloth on it that said if I got any lazier, I'd slip into a coma. And like <laughs> every reading laying down, writing laying down, like that's my gig. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I asked like where you do it. Cause I think that's different for everyone, like where they find their place and where they, you know, some people have a chair or some people want to be outside. And I, um, yeah, I, I like to write at a desk. I'm that person. I like to sit and write and and be there. Um, but I try to do it from bed often. And that's usually when I edit, I can edit in bed, but to write kind of the the bones of things, I do that at my desk, almost like it's my job. I want it to be like, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm almost like I'm clocking in, I'm going to write today and I'm going to do this. Well, Jamie, I love that you let yourself do that though. You, you have accepted that that's just, that's how you create and you and you do it well that way and you let yourself you don't let yourself be influenced by anyone else telling you that you're doing it wrong so love it that was a that was a long journey um I went through like I mean I I was obsessed with process so I have read nearly every craft process book on writing that you could possibly find right um thinking I would like you know crack the code of how to do this right and you know, that's where the sobriety, compassion, creativity comes in. Like I used to have this idea of like, there's real writing. And then there's this like other crap that I do in a notebook. And I don't think that anymore. Like it is all real writing for me. It is all the process is the entire globe, the entire thing that I have to do. 
Ah, that is such an important thing. Uh, take your highlighter pen out and highlight that. That is so important. <laughs> yeah. It was a big revelation because, you know, I'd spent a lot of time shitting all over stuff that is actually really important to me, which is the act of putting my hand on paper. And I would just shit on it. I'd be like, ugh, those notebooks. But, like, now I'm like, no, man, this is my real work. Yeah. Accepting That's... it. Yeah. Great. Hmm. so okay. I guess we kind of wrap up I would oh. like to talk to Jamie some more oh, I know, but... I know. <laughs> we could go on and on I know we could we, we're, we like to have long shows like my husband was like I think maybe you should try to do it to 45 minutes I'm like that's not even possible Steve that's ridiculous we can't possibly do that <laughs> I would be really unhappy with it like podcast i'm like uh like that's barely getting started come on people right i'm like why am i even gonna tune in for that yeah (laughs) well jamie when we do our our southern tour we will definitely go through new orleans i mean how could we not yeah i we i got two extra bedrooms all right (laughs) excellent Sandra, we really have to start booking this tour. We really have yeah, to start. We really do. Because I've never been to the South, so I'm very excited. Uh, nothing would make me happier than to take you guys around New Orleans and the recovery community here, because it is incredible. It's awesome. So cool. All right. We've got to get our act together, Sandra. Yeah. Take our show on the road. Yes. <laughs> so um like i said we could talk to you forever but we probably should wind down a little bit and um we at this kind of phase of the show we ask about um your three items that maybe you have um that you could share with our listeners that's in your unruffled toolbox like yes, for creativity my... or recovery either one this is my favorite part of the show <laughs> <laughs> good so uh, it was important to me thinking about this of like thinking about my past self who did not have a lot of money and worked at jobs that did not make a lot of money. And so like, I really wanted to give things where like, you don't have to be on Instagram and be a model in like an Italian villa to do these things. Because <laughs> um, sometimes recovery can feel economically inaccessible to me and, and mm. people that I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my first one is cultivate your coven. <laughs> your witch's coven um and that is really just finding a group of women um i think it's really important that it be women sorry men um we love you for other things but finding that group of women that you can participate in some kind of spiritual practice that speaks to you so in the past year i have um I've with a group of nine other women, there's 10 of us total. And we meet every single Sunday from 10 to 12. Mm. And we, we work through the gentle, um, a gentle path through the 12 steps. So we're 12, you know, we do 12 steps because we're all in recovery programs together. But I think that that book especially is really accessible to people who don't even like the 12 step model. It is working through the 12 steps, but I mean, there's so much in that book that is, it's neuroscience based and it brings in meditation and it brings in like physical self care. Um, so having that has brought forth miracles in all 10 of our lives. It is the most important thing I think I've ever done for myself is committing to that time. And I know that, you know, not, not everybody has 
acts like I'm in a city. So it's not as hard to find people. But I still think if you can just find a couple of people who can work something like that so that you're showing up, you know, consistently, whatever that means for your schedule, and then working through something together that brings about self-awareness and change is so important. Mm-hmm. And it's really changed my life. I agree. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's a, a it's huge. It's a huge one in recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's the thing that um, the rooms really offer. So like if the rooms, if people are really put off by the rooms, then you can kind of recreate that really good part for yourself away from, you know, the program. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can make it yourself. Yeah. For sure. And, and then, you know, I like to call it my coven. So like, you don't, you know, you don't have to attach it to all the other stuff, like anything that like has a name that you're really put off by, like, um, I like to call it my little witch's coven and we get our incense out and like, I, you know, my sponsor sages me and <laughs> like, <laughs> I love it. that's amazing. <laughs> it, it really is. We're all weirdos down here and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> no there's something there's something magical yeah yeah lady tribes coven's whatever you want to call it just make one make one yeah um my number two is uh has been the greatest teacher for me and we touched on it a little bit but it's it's taking that pause and not reacting right away um that that was uh it took a lot of practice because I didn't even, people would talk to me about the pause and I'm like, I don't even have space to think about the pause. Like I'm just reacting. Um, and so cultivating that pause and then, you know, leaning on others and accepting help from others is my number two. I try to do it daily. Mm. Um, and it's, it's humbling for me because that's, that is the last thing I want to do is tell someone else that I'm suffering or burden them with my problems like, I feel like that. And so the, the practice for me is like when I feel really shitty, it's reaching out and asking um, the people in my life for help. And that can be, you know, just go into the grocery store with me or it can be like just talking to me for 10 minutes or, or whatever. But like I have to daily in my toolbox ask for help when I need it. Yeah, that's a or big one. Or I'll isolate. I'll isolate. And then, you know, three weeks later, realize that, like, I've done a lot of damage to myself. Yeah. yeah. And and all of and these are free. All these things are free. Yeah. <laughs> my uh, number three is for I think this is really for my mamas out there. Like, I have a lot of women in my life who have children and, and especially young children. But like prioritizing self-care is has been so important, especially going through what I've just gone through. Cause like I've been exhausted. I'm, you know, much more emotional than normal. I'm, I can't handle crowds or like lots of stimulus right now. And I see a lot of, a lot of women in my life who feel as if they're always on that train of like, I've got to do this. No, I don't have a choice. I have to, I have to take care of this person. I have to take care of these tasks and I have to, and they just like, they take so much on and there's no room for caring for themselves. Like they feel as if it's self-indulgent to do so. Mm-hmm. And we we are not um, we are not safe with ourselves, our sobriety, with our loved ones, you know, unless we take care of ourselves. So, you know, I started to really think about like, how did I do this? Like, I, you know, I have a job now, which is great, but for a long time, you know, I didn't. And I. 
um, would volunteer at a yoga studio so I could have access to yoga. I would put in like maybe an hour, two hours, and then I would, I would get free yoga out of it. So if that's accessible to anyone, um, I highly recommend doing something like that because it forces you to show up. And if you're there, well, like, fuck it, you might as well do yoga and then you're going to feel better. <laughs> um, there's also like things like community acupuncture if you're in a city and that can really help with anxiety or depression or um, like I deal with a lot of hormonal issues. And so um, there's a there's a place on the West Bank that'll as long as you're OK, like being in a room with other people, it's it's significantly cheaper to to have acupuncture done, um, which has been really valuable to me. Mm-hmm. I do a community acupuncture. It is awesome. Yeah, it really is. <clears throat> and yep. other things are like building that altar, like making time for that quiet space, getting some, you know, it, you don't have to get the like super expensive essential oils, but like something that feels really special, like having good smelling essential oils and sitting down and, and having quiet time with myself um, feels really luxurious and rejuvenates me. And I think it is so important as we take on the caring of everybody else that we prioritize that kind of, you know, mothering for ourselves. And you know, that's how someone put this to me. It's like, you know, you need to mother yourself like you would mother other people. And I was like, oh yeah, because we all need to be mothered sometimes. Like why, why would I deny myself that when I'm looking at the people around me thinking, oh, I'm, they need it? Yeah, we give it all away as women, I yeah. think, you know, we just do. And you're right, giving some back or having that intention to give it to yourself is, a, is um, should be the first thing, right? <laughs> should be the yeah. first, should be the first it, one. It's so, um, it's so important. And I think it's, you know, it's ultimately the decision to do it. It's not what you do, like do what's accessible, like, I love baths, journaling is a priority, you know, having that altered quiet space, but like making the decision that every day I'm going to take a little bit of time to nourish myself and take care of myself. I, it has to be done or we get so frazzled and spread thin. And then like, we're, you know, it's hard to not be reactive when you're hungry mm-hmm. or you're, you've eaten shitty food all day or, or you're tired or yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like we're the we're the first one. We're the fir- it's our our needs are the first things to go, and <clears throat> and uh, it's it it it's not to anyone's benefit, especially especially our own. But and it 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 relates to that leaning on help, you know, leaning on others for help. Like I, you know, I have a very dear friend who she is all of our she's our mother for all of us, and we love her for that. But she is, it's so hard to make her take help. She will actively tell you, no, I don't need anything. No, it's fine. She will push against us and then burn herself out really quickly. And it's, you know, it's so like leaning into others to be like, you know what? Fucking tired. Can you take my kids for an hour? Like, it's okay to ask. Mm. Yeah. We just need to do that more often. Yeah. And that's a great reminder, especially for all the women listening. Like just, we need to do a little bit more of that. A little yeah. kindness towards ourselves, yeah. Oh, well, Jamie, thank you so oh, much. Sir. Yes, thank you, Jamie. Thank you, guys. I, I enjoyed this so much. I love you guys. Aww. Aww. We love you, too. And, and I'm glad, now you can listen to you on your walks with us oh. on <laughs> the so podcast. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> be weird. It 
it's so hard. I'm it's, gonna do that. It's so hard to listen. I I can't listen. Like I I have to re-listen on Sundays before these go up on Monday, and it's really. I'm like I sound like that. I said that. Why did I say that? <laughs> so I don't listen to. I'm just like listening for continuity now. I'm like I can't over-examine it. Yeah, but, I'm cringing. Uh, that. <laughs> um, but I'm what you said and what you shared will be so helpful to our listeners. I know that. So helpful. Yeah. So helpful. Um, do you want to promote anything, Jamie, or any any place that you're writing, or you want people to read your work besides the neutral ground? No. No. Um... <laughs> what? Wait, what I miss? <laughs> no, nope. Don't want to promote myself at all. Um... <laughs> No, I mean, I, so since, um, the accident, like I am just everything that I sort of had up in the air, I'm like, you know what, I'm taking a minute. And so no, just, you know, find me on Instagram. I love to talk to people and, um, yeah, just the neutral ground, not, uh, neutralground.net if, um, people would like to read what me and Nikki do. Yeah, that's great. What, what's your handle on Instagram? It is Jamie underscore Amos. Okay, great. So people can find you there. Perfect. Right. Yeah, I love your Instagram posts. So well, thank yes. you. Guys. And and you go, everybody can come see pictures of my pit bull, who might be the cutest pit bull on the planet. <laughs> close. Yes. Yes. I've had a pit bull for my beloved pit bull for fifteen years, and Aww. so I every time I see your pit bull, I my heart aches a little bit because I miss her so much. So I get it. Oh, I got get it. The pity connection. If she can live to 15, oh yes, please. It's crazy. I know. I know. My Lucy, she lived, she, yeah, I, that's another conversation for another day. <laughs> well, when we do our tour, we can talk about yes. that. We can, yes. we can talk we can about <laughs> Talk about Rue and Lucy. <laughs> oh, all right. Thank you so much, Jamie. Yep. Thanks, Bye. Jamie. Bye. Bye. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.